please open your Bibles if you have them to 1 Peter chapter 1. At the start of Amanda's crisis, the central prayer of her heart was, God, restore my marriage. She still prays this. She should. It is right to want a restored marriage. But through God's sanctifying work, the central prayer of her heart now is, God, save my husband from hell. Unite him with your son. Give him eternal life. It perfectly illustrates the beauty of our church name. Amanda's focus is moved from a best life now, a reasonable desire, a good desire, a right God-given desire for harmony in the home. A desire she still has it has moved from that desire to a desire more centrally occupied in the eternal weight of what comes after this life. William Shakespeare said, a rose by any other name is just as sweet. Someone much later but not quite as clever, said, you can't judge a book by its cover. The Lord warned us of wolves in sheep's clothing. Putting our hope in the outward appearance of anything is always foolish if that's where our full hope is, and it's very often dangerous. So we know that new names and new logos don't make us. They don't change us as a church. The name we have today in its own way, it's great, but it's, it's not better than Sovereign Grace. Those are both beautiful names. Jesus saw it appropriate to call the church in Corinthian, in Corinth, the church in Corinth. In Revelation, he saw it appropriate to call the church in Ephesus, the church in Ephesus. He's not super concerned with a name. But in our case, there's something beautiful about this name that I wanted to highlight today. Because though names aren't important, what they represent is important. And I think God very much wants us to put our hope in what our name represents. Living hope, not as the name of our church, but the biblical truth behind it. If we know what it means, if we put our hope in it, It will define us. It will change us. So this morning, what I briefly wanted to do, and by God's grace, I hope it is is briefly. I've tried to make it briefly. But I do want us to consider what living hope means and why it is good for us to build our lives on the living hope we have. So I'd like to read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, and then talk a little bit about it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, 
He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Kept in heaven for you who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The main question I want us to ask the Bible this morning is what is living hope? God has that answer. We can talk about it and read it, but only he can tell it to us in a way we can understand. So let's ask him to tell it to us in a way we can understand. Lord God, help us understand what living hope means. Lord, for a season at least, you've given us this beautiful name to focus on for our church. Would you help us to drink deeply from the truth it represents that we might fall more deeply in love with the truth it represents, with who it represents, and be transformed by that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So what is living hope? It can sound like a beautiful, sentimental name. It could sound like something you could put on a Hallmark card. May you have living hope today. And you give that to anybody. And they would say, oh, that sounds pretty. It feels good. Living hope. That sounds awesome. Sign me up. But listen, our church's name, it is not sentimental. It is not simply attractive, sounding vague, subjective, interpret as you wish words. This is a strong idea. This is a peculiar idea. This idea has a specific focus. It has teeth. And God wants us to grasp it, to be grasped by it. I believe that First Peter is telling us that what living hope means in this passage is it is the hope that we have of our full and final condition of those resurrected from the dead in soul and in body, united with Jesus forever. It is the sure hope we have of resurrection from the dead, out of the grave, out of the dirt, in new glorified bodies that are perfectly suited to behold and enjoy and without any qualification, be in love with Jesus Christ for eternity. It is the hope we have of a life completely free of sin, complete, completely free of fallenness, completely free 
and unfettered to be the children of God we were made to be when we were saved, who see Jesus face to face, spiritually and literally. And because of that vision, become perfectly like him in love and purity and in joy. That's what I believe living hope is. It is not, as we will talk about, our best life now. It is our best life to come that we taste now, but only in part. So let's look at the text for a few minutes to see if that's the case. Notice in verse 1, Peter says that this living hope we have is according to God's mercy. It's all his doing. We have been born again by sovereign grace. His choice, his grace. But we have been born again into something. We have been born again for something. This is the only place I know where the Bible talks about being born again and qualifies it so quickly. We are born again to something. And that something is described as a living hope. It is a living hope. I think this hope, it's tantamount to Jesus saying, we are born again with a specific destiny in mind that we haven't fully reached yet. And it's living because it's ours through Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Not simply his dying on the cross. See, his resurrection from the dead is the guarantee of our own. His resurrection is the sure promise made seeable to us. That all our debts are, listen to this, all our debts are paid, past tense, in full. See, our sin is not still binding Jesus to the ground. Our sin is not still being paid for. The sins you will commit tomorrow, next year, next decade, should the Lord allow you to, they're not still being paid for. His rising means the paying part is over. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? And his rising means that just as he rose victorious over death, we too will rise victorious over this enemy, this horrible enemy of separation and loss that comes to us all called death. Verse 4, Peter calls this destiny our living hope. He also calls it, in verse 4, our inheritance. We are God's children. And children receive an inheritance. It is an inheritance that's qualified in three ways that Peter wants us to comprehend here. It's imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. What does he mean it's imperishable? It can't rot away. Your inheritance, it cannot rot. It cannot expire. Our future bodies and our life with Jesus, unlike these bodies, they do not have an expiration date. In this world, we wear down. We break down. We lose our vigor. We lose our sight. We lose our hearing. We lose our memory. We lose, in humiliation, the control of our own bodies. And finally, we perish. But our future life is imperishable. 
Our future bodies are imperishable. We were not made for death. Men and women, the world tries to make nice with death. The world tries to say it's just got to deal with it, got to get through it, got to just accept it. It's part of life. We were not made for death. We were not made for slow corrosion or sudden separation from each other, from those we love. And there will be a day that death will die. And our life with Jesus, it will be imperishable. This living hope we have, this inheritance we have, it is undefiled. It is pure. It is holy. It is unstainable. Sin has no part in the future inheritance we have with Jesus Christ for eternity. When we rise with Christ, there will be no more two steps forward and three steps back with God. There will be no more sin we just cannot get over. There will be no more struggle with anger or immorality that we fight so hard against here. With mediocre results for some. There will be no subjective sense that we just can't put our finger on to erase that that we're just distant from God that there will be no sense of fear of him or dread of him or wondering if he's near and loves us there will be no possibility of feeling any hint of condemnation or judgment there will be no more fighting between his will and our will blessed be God Don't you just long for that? So many of you fight so well and so hard, but probably you who fight the best among us, you long more than any of us for the day when there's no more fighting. And we all long for that day so deeply. When we can say like Jesus, my delight is to do your will. There's no qualification. The glory that we have in our inheritance in Jesus is also unfading. The glory of our resurrection bodies and the glory of the life we will have with Jesus, it will not fade. It will not grow dimmer, darker, grayer. The glory of every pleasure in this world fades. Every song you love, you played enough, it gets old. Every movie you love, you watched enough, it gets old. The best things in this world, they fade. Every person that you meet that you just fall in love with, whether in platonic friendship or romance, you learn enough, you struggle enough, it's, it fades. Except as the Lord preserves it. All the joys of this world, we either can no longer enjoy them because our bodies break down or... or or because it loses its luster. But our perfect enjoyment of Jesus, it will never fade. He will mean more to us on day two in heaven, or heaven on earth, than he did on day one. We will be more glorious on day two. And on day five, we will be more glorious than on day two. Because our satisfaction in him who is infinite, it just can't go away. Because there's, there's nothing to fade. There's, 
There's no loss of beauty. There's only increasing measures to behold and enjoy. There's only more and more degrees, greater and greater degrees of satisfaction in his friendship and his love and his tenderness and his kindness and his brilliance and his care. It will never fade. But Peter says, where is this inheritance? Where is this living hope? It's kept in heaven for you, he says. Oh, we taste it now. We enjoy it now. We, we've been drawn into it now, but what's coming is kept in heaven for you, folks. It can't be compared with what we have now. In a similar vein, Paul says in Romans 8, that what we do here is we wait. And while we wait, Paul says we groan. We wait for what we hope for with groaning. We groan for our full adoption, Paul says. The final redemption of our bodies. We groan right now. We groan over broken relationships and broken marriages and broken homes and broken bodies and broken governments. We groan over weaknesses and failures in this life. We groan over war in our hearts and wars on the earth that never cease. We groan because our life with God, though it has begun, it it still misses the perfection that it's destined for. But we don't groan without hope. Peter says in verse 5 that we wait as those who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith. By God's power, we wait as those who are being guarded, protected by faith, through faith. This hope has been born in us through the gift of belief. And it is guarded by God's power. From the first moment that God brought you to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. From that very first moment that we put our hope in his death for our sins. From that first moment. God began protecting what he set in us. God began guarding what he put in us. If you came here this morning truly believing in Jesus Christ and fighting to follow him as a result of that true faith. God himself is making that happen. You are not perfect. You struggle. You do not believe perfectly. You do not love him as you should. But it's there. And he will guard it. Jesus said those who endure to the end are those who are saved. And so God must guard you to the end. God must protect you to the end. So that your faith would never fail. And that you would never fully fall away. And it is his power. It is his sovereign grace. And not your power that keeps you fighting the fight of faith. And for what is he guarding your faith? For a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Once again, we don't get our best life now, men and women. And how sad that would be. If that was the case. As good as your best quiet time was. The glory of that moment it fades. 
the satisfaction of him in that time, that mountaintop has to come down to a valley. As loving as that act of mercy towards the grieving brother or the poor person or the missionary was that you, you committed last week, you have not left sin. Not fully. And sin has not left you fully. As wonderful as your friends and your loved ones are, there is not one you will not have to put in the ground or who will have to put you in the ground apart from the second coming of Jesus Christ. There's a reason why so many ancient, older churches have cemeteries out in the front yard. Do you ever notice that? You drive around in Frederick, you see some of these old brick churches, beautiful old buildings, and cemeteries are right there in the lawn, in the front lawn. It was a reminder to all who walked in not to put their hope in this world, not to believe that they could have their best life now. The truth is hard, but the truth is essential. The last frame of every life on this earth ends not with a happy final scene, as the movies tell us, not with rolling credits and a beautiful soundtrack, as the world tries to tell us. No, it ends with tears falling down our faces and soil falling down on a grave. Paul calls that futility in Romans 8. But into that futility, Jesus invades and blows death to pieces. His Father brings us to faith in something so much better than this broken, fallen world. Faith in the gospel of His Son. His Father tells us that our sins are forgiven, all of them, and that His Son is the King that we need and that we can love as He sets us free from our sin. Through faith, He makes us new in our spirit. We're born again, so that even these old bodies suddenly become vessels of his holy heart. And then he guards us. He watches over us. He protects us. All our days against all threats inside out. Against all dangers, toils and snares. Until the day when that grace fully blossoms. The day Peter calls the last time. The day we see him face to face. With literally new eyes. Made able to behold him and not have to look away. Not in shame. Not in sin. Not in corrosion. But eyes that inside and out are pure enough and strong enough to see him as he is and be transformed into that same image. That is our living hope. And we taste it now. But we wait. First John has one of the most amazing and beautiful promises in the Bible for me. There, First John 3 2 and 3 says this, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. We are His children now, but what we will be has not appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Because we shall see him as he is. And then listen to this. And everyone who hopes 
this way purifies himself. The promise here is that as we bank on this living hope and focus on this living hope and hope in this promise, it cleanses us even as we hope in it. It transforms us today closer and closer to what we will become. Brothers and sisters, our name is Living Hope Community Church. Living Hope, that is a name that can suffer and endure. That is a name that puts its stock more than in the best homes we want, the health we want, the marriage we want, the children as we want them to be, the job we want, the salary we want. That is a name that can endure persecution from a government that is shading grayer and grayer away. That is a name that can be poor and still hold on to the riches we have in Christ. That is a name that can suffer with joy. That is a name that this fallen, condemned, deceived, doomed world needs. They need living hope. In their most honest moments, they know they need living hope. It's a good name. Let's ask God to give us the grace to be worthy of that name.